Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rishmaui, and I am joined this week by our our, our regular our regular attendee, uh, FDR, Fancy Dr. Alistair Roberts, uh, as well as a guest on this episode, uh, Dr. Mark Jones. Uh, Mark is a pastor at Faith Presbyterian in Vancouver received his PhD from the University of Leiden on uh, Christology in the 17th century. And uh, he is most recently famous for having joined Twitter and just blowing it up uh, on there. So, I mean, you may have seen his face around. He's kind of a big deal now. Um, Yeah, so we wanted to have you on today, though, because of a recent little well, recent kind of internet controversy, but it's not that recent overall. There's there's been a, a bit of a theological conversation going on in the evangelical reformed world, and some of you may have seen it over the issue of trinitarian theology and complementarian theology. But but more um, the basic issue as we see it is the is the the issue of whether or not there there can be described a relationship of eternal functional subordination uh, within the Trinity between the Father and the Son, and and so what we have here is a is a kind of relating of of the relations of the Trinity uh, to relations within the family order. So you have typically complementarians, uh, certain kind of complementarians, arguing more recently for this eternal functional subordination. Uh, within the Trinity as kind of an analogy that is worked out in, you know, family life, uh, male and female. And then you have pushback on that, both from egalitarians who typically uh, don't want to see that because, um, well, it just, if, if, if that's true, well, then that, that wouldn't, that wouldn't work well for their position. But there's also pushback from, uh, Reformed theologians from within the community who say this isn't this doesn't fit uh, historic Orthodox Reformed theology, uh, certainly not um, historic Nicene theology. And so, uh, if you're listening so far and you think this sounds really nerdy, yes, it's it's going to go there. Uh, but we wanted to bring wanted to bring Mark on because uh, this this recent blow up just kind of kicked off some conversations, and we we wanted to call in an expert. Um, so glad to have you on, Alistair. You're quiet right now. <laughs> I actually want you to formulate. I actually want. I would love for you to pitch the. I was kind of a general set setup. I'm curious if you would pitch and set up the, 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 the question or the conversation as a whole, though, or the initial lead-off um, question for Mark here. How about that? Just a little bit of a curveball there for you. <laughs> okay. Um, Although that's a baseball term. <laughs> briefly, um, I'll briefly lay out some of the issues as I see them and then um, throw things over to Mark. First of all, we have the biblical data um, that at the centre of the debate is a verse like 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And that's particularly the final statement is key. And then the relationship between the relationship between the man and the woman and the relationship between Christ and God. And on the basis of that 
relationship of two um, positions of headship and submission, there is an argument then that what we see in the relationship between men and women is grounded in the relationship between the son and the father within the Trinity. And this is what the debate focuses upon. I think this is one of the reasons why it's become such an important issue within complementarian circles, because this is a key text. And then if you can ground it within the Trinity, it seems to give extra force to the position. There's a lot riding upon this, apparently, if if this is connected to our doctrine of the Trinity. However, there are other problems to this, not least with the implicit way of understanding the Trinity that arises from this, the social Trinitarianism often that's implicit of three different agents and persons with three different wills and the submission of the Son to the will of the Father, that sort of thing, which, although it seems to resonate with certain language in Scripture, may not in fact be orthodox. So I'd be interested to hear... um, Mark, get into some of the problems with this. Why is it that this verse may not, in fact, um, support what people say it does? Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, an excellent uh, question. I'm really, uh, you know, I think a, a lot of people are appealing to uh, this verse, at least in terms of uh, it has to be discussed, if nothing else. Um, and, you know, the first thing I would say about the passage in 1 Corinthians 11.3 is, uh, you know, this is, uh, it is talking about the economy of redemption, as theologians have put it. Um, but also, you know, historically, theologians have said there needs to be a distinction between, you know, the ad intra relations between the Father, Son, and Spirit, um, per se, and then, you know, economical or functional, I mean, there's different words that are used, some helpful, some not so helpful, uh, between the Father and Christ. And as soon as you bring in uh, the word Christ, uh, you necessarily are speaking of a uh, the God-man who has two wills. And uh, when you uh, speak about the Father and Christ, you are then speaking with reference to a, a human being who has a will and has to subject his will to uh, the Father, to God, um, can we then extrapolate that back into eternity and speak in any way of uh, submission between the Father and the Son if uh, there's only one will between God, which is an orthodox statement? How can there be uh, a submission of sorts? And, and, and maybe there's been some who've tried to do that with Aquinas in different ways, but in terms of what these guys are doing today, I don't see much historical precedent for uh, their view, though uh, there is a little bit of historical precedent in terms of um, Episcopius, an Arminian. Uh, so he rooted the son's subordination or submission to the father in the ad intra relations between the three persons. So that's about the only um, clear historical precedent I can find uh, in this case. So just to clarify for those of our listeners not familiar with the um, the Latin classic terms, you know, the, the ad intra and the ad extra distinctions, uh, the ad intra and the ad extra relations of the Trinity, that's, you know, ad, ad extra just means 
in a sense, outside or historical or, you know, redemptive historical relationships or activities. And then ad intra means within or imminent or, you know, eternal. Yeah, the, 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 the one good way is the free versus the, the necessary. So uh, the ad extra mm-hmm. works of God are freely uh, willed by him. The, the ad intra are, the, are, are necessary, uh, his necessary will towards himself. So uh, yeah, those are, those are good ways of looking at it. Let me, let me ask you one question on this. Um, you mentioned the issue of the one will versus two wills and so on and so forth. Um, not sure a lot of, well, maybe this was new to me when I started really thinking about this a few years ago. Um, talk about the, the, you said the orthodox position on God having one will and how this might play into speaking of uh, an eternal relation of submission within the Trinity between Son and Father, and not just a historical relationship of submission uh, between Christ and and God. Could you speak to that for a, for a second or two? Yeah, and I'd, I'd be you know obviously very interested uh, in what Alistair thinks here. But you know uh, maybe I could just since you did introduce me as a pastor, I'll I'll just speak about this from. You know, if my wife's listening in on this conversation, for example, and uh, I speak about um, submission to her, uh, which I thankfully don't do too much, uh, maybe once uh, a year uh, when she's buying me Christmas presents. But um, when I speak to her about submission, for example, uh, she would understand in relation to me her will um, perhaps being subjected to my will. Uh, and that's how the common person would understand it, that there must be a plurality of wills when the word submission is used. So when you speak of an eternal relation um, between the Father and the Son and you speak of submission, um, it seems to me that the average person is going to not conjure up you know, um, Aquinas, uh, which I don't even think he goes there, but conjure up a, a, a fancy way of positing how one will in God can still have the word submission from the Son, but they'll just think of God then having uh, perhaps three wills according to each person. Um, so, I, you know, I think even the language uh, that's used would probably confuse uh, most people into thinking that there's a plurality of wills um, in God. Uh, so that that would be my immediate concern. Alistair, do you have a thought there? I think one of the things that is difficult when we're having these discussions is reconciling what we have within the Gospels, um, the account of um, Christ's mission, and what we're saying about Trinitarian theology. And often when people talk about things such as inseparable operations, it doesn't seem to fit in with what we read about the Incarnation, um, the account of Christ's baptism, his crucifixion, etc. And the sense of very distinct persons, persons very much as we tend to understand them, rather than persons in the classical theological sense, which are not centres of independent consciousness, as we tend to understand person. Um, I'd be interested if Mark could get into that. What exactly, how exactly do we reconcile the um, gospel narrative with the theological positions? And also, what are some of the meaning of these theological positions? 
terms such as inseparable operations. What does the term person um, mean within the context of Trinitarian theology, as opposed to our more conventional, colloquial uses of it? Huh. <laughs> well, you want to give us a crash course in Trinitarian theology, Mark? Yeah, well, I, I did. I was looking over a chapter of mine in my dissertation last night on uh, on these points, just to refamiliarize myself with the uh, the language. And uh, it, it's you know, it's I think the you know the uh, Herman Bavinck speaks of you know Scripture being anthropomorphic through and through. Uh, and not just to scattered statements here, um, but you know when we come to uh, redemption, that is why I was making maybe a, a bigger big deal out of um, the Father and Christ in terms of um, because Christ is God and God has one will, um, and because He's man and to be fully human is to possess a human will. Uh, so much of what the Scripture uh, speaks. Uh, in terms of Christ's relationship to the Father, is speaking, I think, uh, principally about him subjecting his will to the Father. And, I mean, that's not just a, uh, a verse here and there. It's, it's, it's all over the place, especially in John's Gospel. So you have um, Christ subjecting his will to the Father in terms of the history of redemption as the God-man. And that seems to be the preponderant use of, um, of the, or the proponent way in which the relationship functions. So um, people then, you know, perhaps try to extrapolate, um, add extra, you know, or um, statements that happen in time between the Father and the God-Man Christ and, and bring them back into uh, eternity. And, and I think, you know, that's a giant leap that um, we have to be careful with just because of the nature of the incarnation and what that means. That's, that's, that's really good. I think actually this is one of the, this is one of the issues that I have in this conversation. Um, part of, part of what I've seen is it, so to say historically, I mean, in the recent, recent historic past, advocates of the eternal functional subordination view, like Wayne Grudem or Bruce Ware, uh, maybe a couple others have, um, oftentimes sat very lightly on the doctrine of eternal generation. Um, that, you know, the son is eternally generated from the father, uh, as possibly unbiblical or just unnecessary. And then, um, it seems that still wanting to be Trinitarian and still wanting to be, um, uh, faithful in that regards, have the proper distinctions between the persons. Some of the distinctions between the persons have been, um, uh, the distinction between the person comes from moves like this. Instead of talking about the relations of origin, father, you know, uh, generating the son and the spirit spirating and so on and so forth. Uh, the, these, these relations, these economic relations of, uh, submission and obedience and, and fatherly, I don't know, command, um, sort of do that work. What's interesting though, is some recent advocates of eternal functional subordination, like in that recent, uh, Stark and Ware book, um, do actually pull on the more classic Nicene eternal generation package. And they try and advocate, um, 
they push from the level of, of fittingness in the sense that, that, um, given that the son is eternally generated of the father and there is a priority and posterity, a firstness and a secondness within the Trinity, at least in terms of distinguishing the persons, you know, first father, then son, spirit. Um, Their point is, okay, but the economic, like the, the you know, the son's historical role has to fit somehow with who he is in eternity, right? It's not like, you know, it's kind of the classic medieval question. Could the father have been, you know, become incarnate or could the spirit just as equally become incarnate? And I think they would say, well, no, the son became incarnate for a reason. It fits his role, his, his, you know, his secondariness within the Trinity to be the one who is sent of the father. Um, so I guess, um, you know, I'm very sympathetic to what you're saying about reading it and his person is the mediator, but I'm curious what you do with the, with the, with the question or the challenge about, okay, but how do you relate the ad intra and the ad extra there when it comes to the son's obedience and time? How does that fit with his, you know, his being in yeah, eternity? Yeah. Like, is there, is it a total, is it a total disjunct? Um, yeah. So I, I'm curious what, uh, what you or Alistair would say to that in that regard. Uh, well, actually, uh, I hope you don't mind me jumping in right away, but, uh, it's funny you say that because I, I do have a, an article going up, I think on the mortification of spin website today that uh, addresses, um, why did the sun become mediator? And, uh, and for our listeners today will mean probably three or four days ago at this point. So <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, pro- we'll try and put this up in the show notes if you're yeah, listening. Okay. So. Um, yeah, so, uh, I, you know, the, it, it was actually a question that was much discussed, not only in the uh, me- medieval church, but uh, probably a little more um, theologically uh, in the post-Reformation era among uh, Reformed uh, scholastics and uh, divines and Puritans, and, and hence uh, became a, a major section in my own dissertation on why the son became mediator, not the father or the man. And, and Nowhere that I read, and uh, I use those words carefully, where I read, <laughs> it, uh, do you find that um, the son is uh, mediated because of a sort of submission to the father? And so some of these um, gentlemen speak of an eternal submission as though then the son was sent because the father you know, chose him to go um, and that he was obeying the father. Um, but when they speak of why the son became incarnate they located them in the sort of classical trinitarian um, theology of um, for example the idiomata the proper qualities and titles by which um, each person in the trinity uh, possesses father son and spirit are um, are distinguished but also preserved in the incarnation of the son so uh, the son of god um, you know by virtue of his title um, is more appropriately the son of man and the son of woman. So when we speak about fittingness, uh, and if we want to use that, I'm very happy for them to speak about fittingness. It was not fit, you know, that there should be two persons who both bear the title of son if the father had become incarnate, for example. Um, 
you know, so there's a fittingness there. I think Tertian says uh, there would have been two sons, the second person by eternal generation, and the third, if the spirit had become incarnate, by an incarnation in time. So uh, they um, begin there, and, um, you know, they, they see the second person as the middle person uh, in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the spirit. And so the middle person comes between us and God. There's also a fittingness uh, there. Um, Also the fact that the main end of Christ being a mediator was that we might be adopted into um, the family of God. So through union with Christ, the son, we become sons of God. Uh, And there's a whole bunch of other reasons that they give. Those are just, I'm just throwing out a few of them, uh, which highlight that you don't need eternal subordination or eternal submission to explain why the son became man. Would, would you say there's in a sense, um, if they could in a sense, scrap the word subordination or submission, um, there is a sunliness in the sun. I don't know that if that, uh, that is, and this is where that, 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 you know, again, as Bobbing says, all of this language is anthropomorphic through and through. We get our ideas of fathers and sons. You know, God has been father, son, and spirit from all of eternity, but we get our ideas from, you know, basically where we grew up and, and scripture and kind of cultural context. Um, is it, it seems to be ineradicably part of the language of father and son to think of, you know, a, you know, a, a, an initiating and a completing or, or, or executing in a something of an, of an obedient sense. Um, is that I'm, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Um, is there nothing to that or is that like one of the things where we kind of just say, all right, you know, generation seems to imply, seems to be ineradicably physical, ineradically physical in nature, but we get rid of that aspect of the metaphor because it's not fitting of God. I mean, do you see that kind of in the same way? Um, Mark, I'm happy to hear Alistair. uh, I'd love to hear Alistair's thoughts on this because I believe he's written uh, a post some time back where he does sort of um, tip his hat, if that's the correct phrase to, you know, some sort of idea where uh, that might be, the case is, I, I may be mistaken, but I might be, I'd be great. To Alistair's been too silent anyways. <laughs> Alistair, yeah. what are you thinking? Yes, within the post, I draw the distinction between um, ectypal and um, archetypal um, theology. So God's own knowledge of himself and then his revelation of himself to us. God's revelation of himself to us is in terms that we can understand. It's... Um, I mean, God uses analogies from the creation. Um, Even when we think about theology more generally, the classic terms like son and father, these are terms that we understand to some extent within frameworks from this drawn from human relations. Um, And the danger is an over-determinative application of those human constructs to the divine life. But also that there can be a false modesty in our theology where we we have this 
doubt about God's revelation in these um, in these terms of analogical categories. So the idea that God could reveal himself as Father and Son and Spirit, when these are terms that we understand within our horizon of understanding as creatures, that either we have this, we create this situation where we're sceptical about God's power to reveal himself within our horizons as creatures, and as a result create almost a blank upon which we can project our own values, or we take these terms and give them weight while recognising that there is a some important discontinuity between these and God's own knowledge of himself and God himself as he is in himself, that these terms reveal something true about God, but yet there is some degree of, there's a significant difference and we can't just control God within these categories. I'm not expressing that very well, but when we talk about God as he reveals himself within the economy of salvation, we believe that what we are seeing is a true revelation of God God himself. But yet it is not a revelation that is exhaustive, nor is it one that is um, direct and immediate of God as he is in himself. It's a revelation that is accommodated to our understanding and is conditioned by our creaturely condition. Um, And as a result... It needs to be treated with care, but also with some measure of confidence because we trust that God is truthful in the way that he presents himself to us. I'll be interested to hear Mark's perspective on this. Yeah, uh, well, I think, you know, I I agree very much with that. And, uh, you know, even when I was highlighting some of the reasons why the son became incarnate, you know, I'm, I'm all for the the fittingness of uh, the incarnation. In fact, uh, I, uh, I believe, and this is a, a very uh, minority position, that if Adam hadn't sinned, the son would have become uh, incarnate. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's other reasons for fittingness even then. And, and one of the things that um, I don't know what you guys think, but uh, I was just uh, thinking about this with a friend the other day who uh, when we speak of these types of um, issues, uh, a lot of people are um, speaking about going back into, you know, the, the eternal Trinitarian relations, but not much as uh, speaking about the uh, the teleology of human relations, which are rooted not in what the Trinity is as such, but what the future, uh, what future the Trinity has in glorified communion with the church. And uh, that doesn't receive a whole lot of attention. So, you know, the end state of the church is feminine. You know, we will be the glorified bride, city, temple in feminine terms. And and that's not meaningless and comes out of the entirety of the uh, Levitical woman or wisdom Eve uh, church tradition. Um, and that comes into its full form and fruition uh in in glory uh and so you know the the ever glorious one or the uh, the triune god has um you know determined to be glorified forever by way of the bride now um that's sort of going in an eschatological direction which i think i'm more comfortable with uh discussing these things than going back into eternity and, and speaking of eternal submission um you know, I'm not sure how to 
we would relate all of that, but it's 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 getting uh, probably overlooked in discussions as what's happening in the future as well. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. I think no, that's, that's crucial. Not a point. I think also what we see that's not a point. What um, Go Paul for it. talks about in one Corinthians eleven is very much grounded within redemption. It's grounded within creation, and it's grounded within um, God's final purpose. And that's what we should be talking about. There are grounds for talking about the relationship between men and women within this context. So even if we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we see this pattern of God's work within creation as one of forming and then filling. And there is this pattern within that that we see also within um, redemption. But there is this this order where um, we have forming, naming, taming, structuring, dividing, on the first three days, and then the second three days, which correspond to the first three days, are days of filling, generation, perfecting, glorifying, and um, delegating, and all these sorts of other tasks. And then in the um, account of Genesis 2, we see almost a recapitulation of the pattern of Genesis 1, um, where there is a formlessness and void, and the answer of the formlessness is the formation and the answer to the voidness is the filling. But we see the original creation within the original situation within the creation as being one that is without plants, um, without proper watering of the land. And so the water covers the land almost in an indiscriminate manner, just coming up from the surf, coming up and watering the whole surface of the earth. And then we see this, gradual recapitulation of the days of creation as Adam is created like the light was, Adam is the light of the world, then we have the formation of this sanctuary area, this um, heaven sort of realm that set up um, this analogy with the heavens above as God divides this garden from the rest of the creation and then planting trees within it and the rivers coming out of the garden to divide up the lands much as we see on day three adam is then placed within the garden as the light was placed within the firmament on the day four and then the animals are brought to adam to be named corresponding to days five and six and then we see the creation of the woman and then the bringing together of man and woman in rest in the garden and so there's a recapitulation of that pattern but then what we also see is that adam is given tasks that very much correspond to days one to three and he's given the task of naming naming only occurs on day one to three in the original creation account he's also given the task of defending and upholding the boundaries and days one to three were very much about establishing and dividing the world these establishing these great boundaries and then what we see the and the woman's calling is very much related to the filling task, to the task of glorifying, to the task of bringing the future, all these sorts of things. And within um, God's work in redemption, we see a similar sort of pattern being played out, um, that God's work in Christ is very much focused upon forming the structures, establishing this order. And then in the spirit, he fills, he glorifies, he perfects, he brings the future. It's generation and regeneration and all these sorts of patterns. And this association between the spirit and the bride is also significant. There is this close affinity between the two. And so I think there are grounds for talking about the relationship between the imminent trinity, the work of God in the economy, and the relationship between man and woman. But yet, projecting that back into... um, 
the ontological trinity, God's self as he is in himself, we need to be very careful when we do that. And I don't think we have grounds for doing what people think we do. So, Mark, this is what happens. Alistair like, sits there quietly and builds up a lot of steam, and then he just lets go on a, on a little tour through biblical theology, and it all evens out that way. Um, <laughs> uh, no, that actually reminds me, Fred Sanders had a piece the other day, well, by the other day I mean like three or four years ago, on this Trinitarian issue. And um, part of his point was that, in a sense, the image of the Trinity, the image of the imminent Trinity is the economic Trinity, right? We, we're often very quick to try and find an image of the imminent, like, eternal Trinity within, you know, humanity and, you know, because of the image of God and, you know, this or that political society and so on and so forth. And, um, and his part of, if I remember the point properly, was, um, well, the best image of the imminent Trinity trinity is the economic trinity and then um let's slow down with the quick move to human society and human social ordering that uh we kind of either want to read up or read back in or read read forward because oftentimes um you know this is just this is just a broader this is a broader issue than even just the complementary and egalitarian debate when it comes to trinitarian theology Right, you have the same issue popping up in um, ecclesiologies. Right, there was you know a series of books trying to say that well, hey, look, the Trinity grounds our view of the church. Right, you've got the Trinity grounding our view of the Eastern Orthodox, you know, bishopric, and then oh, look, just so happens that Cardinal Ratzinger writes a book in which the Trinity happens to, you know, support uh, a papacy. And then Miroslav Wolf happens to write a book that supports, you know, a free church association, a book about the Trinity, how it supports a free church association, and, and they're all appealing to the same doctrine. Um, and so this move in general is one that I think I'm, I'm wary of overall, even just beyond its setting its current setting in the complementarian egalitarian um, conversations. Uh, it's one that's just rife throughout broader Trinitarian theology and broader church theology, which is why some of these issues of nailing down will, you know, how many wills in God. I mean, it's interesting. People are focusing here on this intra reformed debate, uh, but oftentimes people being critical of it, um, you know, in other camps are still, I don't know, in a sense, ignoring some of the kind of broader social Trinitarian, their Trinitarianism that's totally unconnected to this little debate. And so that it's focused over here and not looking at it over there when it's the same kind of move in a sense is being made more broadly than even just this one debate. And so that's why it's, it's kind of an a helpful test case in a certain way. Um, and so that was just, that's, that's one of, it's one of my comments about the broader scene in which these local debates are occurring. This isn't in some ways, it's not just a, a little niche intro reform debate. Uh, it's reflective of much broader 
concerns with the way Trinitarian theology is done and what the doctrine of the Trinity is, in a sense, used for and whether or not it's appropriate to, you know, use it, in a sense, for anything other than itself. This this really is an important point because you'll see very similar arguments being presented in defense of um, egalitarian or feminist positions. The logic is very similar, and so it's not just something that's a complementarian issue. You'll find, for instance, in Maltman or um, a number of feminists, someone like Kevin Giles as well as an egalitarian, they'll put forward arguments from the ontological trinity for the basis of their understanding of social relations in a feminist or egalitarian manner. And so when we're attacking this sort of logic and challenging it, we're challenging a a range of positions on um, ecclesiology, upon um, gender relations, upon society more generally. And it isn't just this piece of um, complementarian inside baseball. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Mark, and you, you know, uh, I I have to say that um, you know, there's there's probably you know an irony here that uh, maybe is being missed, but you know, uh, I uh, you know, I would, I guess, if I had to choose, I would, you know, I'm firmly committed to male only um, leadership in terms of elder minister, however you want to refer to that in the church. So, you know, people would describe me as complementarian. But I think, you know, when when you see this type of theologizing going on in order to defend complementarianism, um, I think it could have the opposite effect in terms of um, good men and women giving up on complementarianism, uh, or at least really reacting strongly against the phrase because of these types of theological moves that seem a little bit um, forced and unnecessary. So uh, you end up, you know, when people are on the fence, and there are many people on the fence, and they see this type of maneuvering going on, they wonder, is the case really that strong that you have to do this? Uh, when, of course, the case is strong for for male-only um, uh, ministers, for example. Um, but I don't need to, you know, butcher or compromise my, my Trinitarian theology um, in the meantime. So, you know, that's my worry is that this, this won't in fact have the desired effect. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, that debate I've tried to steer clear of simply because I don't think anything I, I, I have to say would add more than kind of a general hedging confusion. Um, but I do think that, uh, I do think that general point of certain moves and certain positions being adopted for other reasons than the position itself. Um, that is a, just, that is a danger of, of this kind of, of, of this kind of theologizing. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the, the case with some of the main proponents. Um, I mean, I know, I know a couple of guys, I mean, I know John Stark and, and his essay in that book was, you know, actually one of the very, I think very careful ones trying to affirm classic Nicene theology. And he's, you know, guys like that who I know really care about the Trinity for the sake of the Trinity, uh, not just for the sake of gender role issues. Um, but, but in these kinds of hot button issues, a lot of the time, a lot of the moves getting made and a lot of the moves being advocated, um, 
take on these, in a sense, extra referential um, and political dimensions to them. Like I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit this doctrine uh, in order to hit that doctrine over there, or that organization over here, or, um, and uh, and it's unfortunate uh, for, for just. I don't know, focusing on the worship of the Trinity, I think. Um, and so that's part of my, part of my hesitation with some of these things, but, um, we, we wanted to just address some of them, try and get out some of the issues on the table, uh, when it comes to, you know, the will of God, the, you know, the, the triune persons and, and the relationship between the history and the economy, um, or the economy and the, and eternity, um, and I'm sure we barely scratched the surface, but I think we're going to wrap it up here and, and, and just pray that this was hopeful to our listeners. Um, Mark, it was a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thank um, you so much. So helpful. And uh, it was nice to have a different accent on the show, <laughs> kind of a variation. Um, <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't just straight American. It wasn't just straight you know, UK. You had, as we've said the pan everything kind of basically all of her majesty's subjects across the continents i think yes, is what we're dealing yes. with like you said yeah so absolutely <laughs> and, um, uh, and, uh, and a real a real privilege to speak uh, to listen to i wish uh, I, I i wish alistair had uh, spoken a little more to be honest uh but <laughs> that's the the way it goes so maybe um uh in the future uh if we should meet again on the phone. Uh, we'll be able to um, uh, listen a little more to him. So I, I apologize if uh, if I spoke too much. No, no, it, you're fine. Um, we have it was great to have reason. you on the show, Mark. Uh, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, guys. Yeah. It was really, really fun. If you're listening at home, uh, once again, we will have a number of these articles listed up in the show notes, um, some of the original articles that kicked it off, as well as Mark's article and Alistair's uh, older piece, which was very helpful um, in clear, charitably clarifying some of the issues involved, as well as, I think, Sanders' piece. So we'll get them all up there on the show notes at mirrororthodoxy.com. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, please feel free to share it or rate and review us at iTunes. Um, if not, well then, you know, that's just life. Uh, but until next time, thanks for listening. Take care.